I will start with a good bit of listener feedback, and then after that, there's some weird stuff going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. We should talk about it. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening. Yes, indeed, the Baptist in me will be coming out because we are but, what is it, February, so March, April, May, June. We are like four months away from the National Convention, and there is some controversy stirring in advance of what is the the meeting of the largest Christian denomination in the country. And it is controversy that I think interests everybody from all spectrums of even the show. So even if you're not part of Southern Baptist life and you're into political life and philosophy and uh, and the ideologies with which we interpret the world. There's some good conversations to have there, we, and we'll get to it in just a bit. I do want to start with you, the listener, giving me some feedback and comments. We'll have some fun with that, and we'll get started in just a moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. We're, be- we're dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk about everything here on The Corey Truax Show. I also serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and Beachwood meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings, and you are cordially invited to join us any given Sunday morning. We'd love to see you there. Thank you for listening on 91.9 and 92.9, His Radio Talk. And if you are listening to the podcast, wherever you find podcasts, thank you. I am grateful that you listen and share the show. Let's go to listener feedback from the last couple weeks here. I like this one. This one is from Glenn. Glenn says, Corey, I am a big fan of... <laughs> I, love, I love this. Because Facebook Messenger, it gave me... Oh, this message, yeah, this is from Facebook. It only gave me like the first five words. And so I saw Corey, I'm a big fan. And then I opened the message and it said this, Corey, I'm a big fan of Hannah Miller. <laughs> Hannah Miller is uh, the morning, one of the morning hosts, one of the uh, co-hosts of Christian Worldview with Tony and Hannah. I am somewhat often the Tony portion of that show and will fill in. So Glenn writes in to tell me, Corey, I'm a big fan of, Heli- of Hannah Miller who I suspect is an actual angel. You, sir, or here we go. Here's my assessment of me. You, sir, are okay. Huh. Well, thanks, Glenn. That's better than I would have said. I don't wouldn't go that far as to say is okay. He says, you, sir, are okay, but a bit too strident with other fine Christians who do not comply with your exact requirements. All right. Let's... Let's pull that apart for a second. Let's flesh that out, as it were. I am a bit too strident. Well, first, I think that word means, technically it means harsh, or like being a a grating person. And so, sure, I am too strident. End of sentence. Sometimes I'm too harsh. He says, with other fine Christians, for the record, I don't think I know any fine Christians. I know a bunch of Christians who try really hard, uh, but I don't know about fine Christians. I am strident with these Christians who do not comply with my exact requirements. This, I disagree with. I think I provide a good good bit of flexibility and grace, as in speaking the truth in love, when it comes to theological differences. For example, on the show recently, in the last couple months, I have shown a great deal of flexibility on those who think different things about creation, those who think different things about the rapture, those who think different things about the end, uh, the end of times and the uh, and eschatology. 
I offer a lot of open-handed flexibility on those matters. So, and I, I know what you're talking about, Glenn, that I, I, when I think I'm right, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I'm open to hearing arguments, but that's, uh, but, but why have a, have a stance if you don't actually really believe it? But even in that realm where I actually really do believe what I think on theological matters in particular, I hold onto a lot of those things loosely. I'm not holding loosely to the fundamentals of the faith, but you know, if someone thinks differently about Bible translations or whether or not we should do songs in church from from Hillsong or Elevation, I'm I'm flexible. But then he gives an example. So you know what my mind went to? Glenn writes in and says, "Hey, I think you're too strident with Christians who don't agree, don't comply with your exact requirements." Well, one I, I thought he was talking about someone maybe he had been someone who hadn't heard me in a long time because everyone thought that about me during the 2016 primary campaign. I was, I lost a lot of listeners and a lot of people were telling me how mean I was. And so I thought you must be thinking of me circa 2016 and it's been a long time and I'm not really, I don't behave that way anymore. But then he says something to clarify before I tell you something, that thing he says to clarify, he, um, he says my exact requirements, like you, you're, you're not, you're too strident with people who don't meet your exact requirements. Well, I would argue where I have a preference, I will leave everyone alone. It's one of my big principles in life. Everyone leave everyone alone. Let everyone live. Stop forcing things on people. That's why I'm, I labor, excuse me, I, uh, what's that word? I border on libertarian. On matters of theology, what I'm saying here is, I think, I, I think I've rightly divided the word of truth. I think I've determined the truth, not from me, it's outside of me, because no one should care what I think, but the Bible says the following, and on that, I'm going to stand stridently. So it's not my requirements on which I stand stridently. It is on Scripture. And then here's the clarifying word from Glenn. Glenn says, for example, the guy who took a stand against Nancy Pelosi is a prime example. And then he said a very nasty thing about Nancy Pelosi and then finished with, have a nice day, new Facebook friend. Well, you have a nice day as well, Glenn. So last week I talked about that pastor, if we can call him that, in Calpins, who decided it was his job to make a political point with his resources. And so, no, I, I don't take that back at all. I don't think I was too strident at all. I'm right, he's wrong. And Well, Corey, that's quite strident. Yeah, I know. And I'm right, and he's wrong. And the other positions on that aren't debatable. This is That wasn't a thing for the church to do. It's not a thing. It is not what the church was supposed to go do, is make a point about political po- Nancy Pelosi and make a petty political point that makes no actual difference. Who A point that actually will alienate people that will otherwise need the gospel. That would otherwise, maybe, if you were doing any kind of outreach in that church, Reaching out to people that actually need to hear the message, but knowing, oh, that church is the really political church. They're the ones that really, really care about how you think about Donald Trump. And so, yeah, I'm strident. That pastor damaged the gospel, damaged the work of the kingdom of God. There's no in-between on that, and I'm just right on that. Thank you, Glenn, for the message. Well, let's go to this next one, Face uh, listener feedback. This one from Gary. Uh, this is uh, last week I said to you, the listener, can anybody explain to me what happened to Joe Biden? Why is he falling into nothingness in this primary with no real explanation? Like, I just, it, there's no reason for him to be doing so poorly. And Gary writes in with his theory as to why Joe Biden has fallen apart. 
he's Gary says number one, almost nobody wants a nice guy anymore. That Gary is a good point. I do, by the way. I want someone who behaves and acts like an adult and is diplomatic, can use their words effectively. That's what I want. I don't. I I, I don't need like r- literally right now the some of the front runners. You got Trump saying to Bloomberg. You're short. He's 5'4". He's he's mini Michael Bloomberg. And then Michael Bloomberg writing back originally with he's fat and orange. Neither one of them showing themselves to be qualified in their behavior. I actually do want nice people. Par- partly because part of being nice often means maturity. You've grown up some. You've learned some things. You have a vocabulary and an intellect. And so uh, I think, Gary, you're right. The folks have stopped having the decorum and the desire for adult mature behavior. And Joe Biden was trying to play that card. I actually played when he announced uh, he was running for president. His first ad was about morality and character. He focused on what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, in that white supremacist rally thing there. Because he was trying to say, I am the moral choice, the character choice. That was the argument he was making. And so, uh, and then the folks on the left, because they see... Donald Trump acting like he does as a, as a fighter. They want a fighter back. And so Gary makes a good point. The number one reason Joe Biden's falling apart is people don't like a nice guy anymore. Number two, the folks who still want a nice guy, this is Gary writing, the folks who still want a nice guy are not happy with Biden trying to get a spine lately. That's also likely true. So Biden starts to feel the pressure from Bernie's surge, starts to feel the pressure of Buttigieg and Klobuchar. Yeah. Those two pulling from the moderate lane of that primary. And as he felt that pressure, he started to get mean. That's when he started act. He he said to that person on the... What did he say to that supporter at the rally? You're a lying... Oh, a horse-faced lying something. And it was a woman he was talking to. I was like, you can't, you can't call a woman horse-faced... Like, you can call John Kerry horse-faced because he's horse-faced, but you can't call a woman horse-faced, Joe! And so, you're right, probably, Gary. That's another reason. And the number three reason, Gary says, that Biden might be falling apart is that he might be losing his memory. So, I I know that's said in jest, but I I need to be sensitive on this one. I actually do think something's wrong with Joe Biden. He's not saying his words correctly. There's a, and it's not just stuttering. There, there seems to be an actual intellectual capability issue, some some kind of mental acuity and dexterity that was once there that's not there when it comes to pronouncing words and recalling the ones he's looking for. And that should be a shame in that the guy is seventy eight years old. Seven, he's seventy something, and I think it's mid to late seventies, not early. You know, the the average American male will get dementia sometime in their late seventies. That's and, and praise the Lord that that number is coming down. But that's just I want to be sensitive to it. It's but he is he is very old. I mean, I got to take a rabbit trail here. This is one of the things I wish candidates would have the character to ask themselves, asking themselves about their own qualifications. And I've seen that the last several cycles. People who have no business running for president, running for president. And even Bernie Sanders, at at also being a 70... I think he's the one I'm thinking of. He's 78, and it's Joe Biden who's 72 or 73. 
But life expectancy in the United States for a man, I think, is 79 years and some odd months. Like, Bernie Sanders, in theory, is the average American male, and he just had a big heart issue. Not being, I don't want to be morbid, but the chances are he will not live into a first term. That's just the, that's just the truth. I don't like it. It's sad, but it's true. For that, my, for that matter, Donald Trump is 73 and doesn't seem to be in great condition, doesn't seem to have the greatest habits, and so you, you wonder about a second term with him at his age. But, but I could go back about qualifications. This is when I, I riff here where I get to make everyone mad and I can't wait. Go back to 2008. Barack Obama had no business running for president. He had been a state senator, then he ran for Congress and lost, and then he was a senator for, I think, when you counted up the working number of days, like how many days he actually spent in the Senate, it was fewer than 150 days, and he was like, I should be president. I'm going to run. Hope it change. And then he won. But And we saw the effect of that. He wasn't qualified, and he did a bad job. He, he should have known better. I would say the same thing of Donald Trump. You should have known better. You're very good at marketing. And basically nothing else. You're not good at anything except marketing. And praise the Lord, we've not seen a lot of, of that. We've seen some of that effect, certainly, with the chaos that we, we've been under and a lot of the instability culturally, socially, uh, but I, certainly economically we've not felt that. But people should know better. And then if you're Joe Biden, you should know better. Brother, it's, it's time to ride off into the sunset. You've had an incredible life. Go, go spend it with, with the grandkids. Go spend it with family. Bernie Sanders, hey man, you've had a long life. You've not really, Bernie Sanders, where I could say of Joe Biden, he's accomplished a lot and done some things. Bernie Sanders has been largely, listen, he's made in the image of God. I, lo- I love Bernie Sanders because he's a human made in the image of God and I would pray he hears the gospel before he dies and he repents and follows Jesus. I can also say with some clarity as he's a public figure, he's literally done nothing with his life. He's accomplished nothing in his life. He's been living off the government his entire life. Got elected very young. He's only ever had elected offices. Never a real job in his whole life. He's been, it's almost a sad story for him. But both of them at their age, they should know better. You're not qualified because you got, as you get older, you got a problem here. I would say that of me. I'll be 35 in a year technically able to run for president. Should I run for president? No. I'm not qualified. I know a lot of stuff. I don't know enough stuff. I have some character. Probably not good enough. Right, so this is a thing that we should consider. People should actually ask themselves, am I qualified to run for the office that I'm running for? All right, we, we got to get to a break. Um, we're over. When we come back, i got one more piece of listener feedback. We'll get on to other news and topics that I think you shall enjoy on the rest of The Corey Act Show. Welcome back to The Corey Act Show. Connect to me and the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax, and you will find me there. I hope you will. One last piece of listener feedback. This one from Wayne. One, I was apparently wrong uh, about... The uh, one thing I said about Brexit two weeks ago, I said that the United Kingdom would be returning to the pound sterling, and apparently they never went away. So even though they were part of the European Union, the pound sterling as a matter of currency was always around. So Wayne corrected me on that. Two, he had a question. 
because I think of a, yeah, it was like a church experience he had about the idea of actually using real wine in communion. Be- and that's normal, I think, at some Catholic situations and some Presbyterian situations. But certainly in a Baptist world in which I live, you you use the Welch's. That's what you use. You use the grape juice, but never the actual wine. I personally would be in favor of a system where you could do both so that everyone can live by their own conscience. conscience. Uh, because it's definitely the case that the First Communion, w- w- they weren't drinking Welch's. The weird thing that some preachers have done over the years to try to turn the obvious alcoholic wine of the New Testament into some kind of unfermented juice, it's unbiblical, the hermeneutic is terrible, the interpretive principle is bad, uh, the translation issues are, are terrible, it's obviously alcoholic wine. And so, uh, but I also know, to, know with fullness there are folks whose consciences are very genuinely seared by the by the idea of drinking any alcohol at all. And so I would be for a system where both options are offered and for the Christian who wanted to take part in a communion where wine is being served, your conscience should not be bound whatsoever. Go in peace and celebrate the Lord's table with whatever they're serving you there. All right. So I think, am I right? I think that is all of the listener feedback I wanted to get to. Before we get to some of the denominational stuff, the Southern Baptist Convention stuff, there's a couple other items before we get there. Here's a, just a, a thing that happens to me. I watch the news, I, I listen to the news, take in the headlines, and from time to time, some sort of epiphany will hit me. And I just I think I had one of those this week. As there's a lot of there's a lot of consternation out there on the left and the right regarding how how Bernie Sanders is surging towards the Democratic nomination. I ultimately, uh, oh, let me make a prediction. That's fun. Uh, so if you're listening live on, I guess that'll be February 22nd, so mark that down. If you're listening to the podcast, you mark it down whenever that happens to be that you're listening. I I really think there's a high chance of getting to go to this Democratic convention in whatever, I can't remember where they're doing it. Uh, the Republicans are meeting in Charlotte. I can't remember where the Democrats are meeting. But go into that thing brokered. And as a political nerd, that would be so much fun for me. I really wanted that in 2016, not just because I didn't like the nominee for the Republicans, but just out of the intrigue. We've never get to, I've never gotten to see one, what a brokered convention would look like. And if you were asking me to put money on any candidate right now, like you, you got a bet. You got a bet on Bernie, Buttigieg, Bloomberg, Biden. That's a lot of Bs, Bloomberg. Biden, Buttigieg, Bernie. Um, I would bet on brokered. That's the B I would bet on, is the brokered convention. Uh, the way that I see the map uh, building up. And they, they have a, I hate to say it, the Democrats have a better system than Republicans. They they reward most of their delegates, delegates proportionally instead of winner-take-all in most of their states. And so there's been some consternation building up around Bernie Sanders being the nominee because there's a lot of folks on the left, including MSNBC-type commentators, liberals on CNN, saying you know, the, the country's not ready for that. It's also dis- it's like it's disastrous. Uh, you, you've actually got folks on the left saying, like, Here, Bernie Sanders' website adds up to something like $100 trillion of spending over the next 10 years. Guys, 
we're scheduled to spend $40 trillion these next 10 years. He wants to literally more than double the budget, almost triple the budget. Where is that even coming from? There's not enough billionaires to, to take from. Like, listen, you could murder all the billionaires and take every dime they have and liquidate their assets, and you can't pay for all of Bernie's stuff. And so there's folks freaking out about it on the left and the right. Nevertheless, he is surging. And here was my epiphany. Let's say, let's just say, Bernie Sanders becomes the nominee. I think what we would have gotten, like the big message in the last five years of politics, would have been the failure of the two political parties. Because let's be clear about what one of the things Trump was. Trump was a repudiation of the Republican Party. He, wa- he came in and wrecked it. He came in and wrecked the party. I, I always wanted the party wrecked. It's a bad party. They, they don't represent their constituents well. They're not aggressive enough getting the things that they pledged they were going to get. They run up deficits like crazy like we're doing now. Like re- The Republican Party needed to be wrecked. I just didn't want him to be the one because he's distasteful. Equally, you got to know there's my equal on the left. There's got to be me, my, the version of me out there on the left that goes, the Democratic Party is corrupt, and it doesn't do what, what it says it's going to do, and it's not aggressive enough, and we, we want to see it wrecked. Okay. And then here comes Bernie to wreck it. Because it, it's a, it is so similar. Trump was a, a Democrat for a long time. Then he was an, he's really independent. He was never a Republican. He ne- was never a conservative. And he came from outside of it to wreck it. As re- I guess as a populist, if he has any ideology, but really someone with no ideology at all. And then Bernie comes with a very specific ideology, and it's destructive, immature, and terrible. It's an immoral ideology of democratic socialism. And, and not just, it's important to say it's immoral, but it's also practically destructive and hurtful to people. Not actually a Democrat. He's, he's never been in the Democratic Party. He comes from outside of it and wrecks it. And it's a testament, the last several years of politics, the last five or six years of politics, is a testament to the party system is just terrible. They've failed the American people, and it's time for both of them to get challengers to get broken up. Like I, I tell you this, this would be, man, if there's ever been a time for this. I, I, I'll get to some Christian worldview points on this. At some level, this is a Christian worldview point because a biblical worldview point, because I'm trying to talk about how a political system would be better for all people, and that's that's one of the things we do as Christians according to Jeremiah 29, is we go into the cities, the, the, the communities, the countries God has placed us, and we work for the welfare of those cities. We we build houses and plant gardens and take fam- and, and create families. Like That's what Jeremiah 29 says. So you participate in public life. Well, here's an idea that would make public life better for us all. If Trump... Well, not if. So Trump is running as the nominee for, for the Republicans. And there's a lot of people like me dissatisfied with that. And let's say Sanders is the nominee. A non-Democrat is, is the representative for the Democrats. And there's a lot of Democrats out there unsatisfied. It would be the perfect election. Not for just some party to come in and say we're the middle. Like there's this scenario in my head. I know this is, this is fanciful, I'm, I'm sure, to most of you. But there's this scenario in my head where something like Tulsi Gabbard and Jeff Flake. So Tulsi Gabbard, the Democratic rep, 
and the Jeff Flake, the Republican senator, got together and ran as a third option. A Republican and a Democrat, a fairly moderate, a, a moderates on both ends, the, a moderate Republican and a moderate Democrat, to say here's a middle ground between the insanity of a Trump and a Sanders. But that's not the best way. The best way would be this, that if Bernie wins a Democratic nomination, and there's the Trump out there too, the best way would not to be to have a third option. It would be to have a third and fourth option. That would be awesome. Where the, the farthest left is Bernie. And so something like a Bloomberg or a Tom Steyer that is trying to play themselves more moderate, a Klobuchar says, we're not doing it. You know, we're not going to let Bernie steal the Democratic Party. Here's a moderate run. And at the same time, then some, somebody on the right comes through to challenge Trump, I would say from the right, not from the left, but from the right. That would be awesome. And be, it would be better for all of us because we would be able, again, to have more options. Politics is that one thing in American culture where we've not, I said that one thing. I've said this before about education policies. There's a few things where we have not modernized our systems and our choices. Like uh, in almost everything, we've Amazoned everything. Like you've got so much choice out there because our, because of the brilliance of free markets and what we've brought to the people. We've not done that with education, and we've not done that with politics. In politics, it's you know you, you can't go and <laughs> this is an analogy, but you the same way you go to Amazon and you're looking for a product and you sort price from low to high. You can't do that with politicians. You don't have an endless amount of choices. You get two. Here's your two. Pick one. And man, if we could break that and be more modern, but like our economy, and offer a bunch of different options, that would be cool. So that was one point from the Bernie, the the epiphany from the Bernie surge. Here is the second point. This one's hard for me because I don't know if you've noticed, guys. I struggle with humility. I, some, I don't think I struggle too hard with curiosity, but sometimes I do. I tend to be quite curious about other people's perspectives and thoughts. But this does mean that this failure of the parties, that Republicans repudiated their own party, or at least a plurality of them did, by nominating Trump. That there might be a plurality of Democrats that repudiate their own party by nominating Sanders. It's now worth asking the question, why did they do that? What's going on out there? What is it that Republican voters were not getting from their party that they wanted? What is it that Democratic voters weren't getting from their party that they wanted? It would be this kind of election, if those two are the nominees, that we should have the humility and curiosity to stop and not just say, well, they're just all crazy. Oh, well, there's something there. There's something brewing there, a, a dissatisfaction with the system, a system that's not being responsive. And so instead of just, like I did at a great deal, instead of just brushing off the Trump voter and the Sanders voter as insane, maybe you have this, the talk and figure out, well, what's going on? What are we missing out there that, that drove them to these really extreme uh, really extreme conclusions. All right. Maybe that is the 
the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah, let, we'll make that the last thing before we get into this Southern Baptist Convention discussion. All right, so I've got to set the table before you. First, there is a uh, there's a, some episode in the archive of the show, if you're listening live, on 91.9 and 92.9 WLFJ, His Radio Talk. Th- first, thank you. Second, every episode of the show is on demand. Wherever you find podcasts, you can go back and find other episodes of the show. In the last, I don't know, four months or so, I had on our lead pastor at Beachwood Church, Doug Truax, who helped me talk about some of the uh, some of the conversations happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, the country's largest Protestant denomination, the, the, country, the country's largest denomination, period. And we talked about some of the, the issues happening there. And as the actual meeting of the convention is approaching, there's some more movement. And so if you want to go back and listen to that episode, I think it's helpful to get some of the context. Here are some of the things that Christians in the Southern Baptist Convention are talking about, and I don't want to say struggling over, but certainly having some some conversations around. One of them, and at least the number one to me, the number one to me is it does seem some smaller group, not a majority, but it does seem people who are higher up in leadership are not holding to with the same... Uh, with the same grip, not holding to with the same stridency. That word was used to me at the beginning of the show, but sometimes I'm too strident. When it comes to gender roles, I'm going to go very fast on this because it's ground we've covered on the show, that my position is that men and women are distinct, that they are different than one another. They have different strengths and weaknesses and that we complement each other, that we need each other in life in marriage, and in the church. And just the same way that we are different, we have different strengths and weaknesses, we also have different roles that God has equipped us to play our roles properly. And when a man does not serve his role well, everyone suffers. And when a man tries to take on a female's role, everyone suffers in that marriage, household, organization, church. When a woman tries to take the role that God has ordained for a man, everyone suffers. That woman, the men around them, the women around them, the children around them, that God has ordained good systems, and men and women are distinct, not just in their nature, but also in the roles God has given them in the house and in the church. One of those distinctions would be that leaders in the church, the actual eldership, those who make the decisions, and shepherd the flock of God among them, as Peter says, I think that's in First Peter, that's men. Men do that. That there are women teachers, but there are no women, I would say, preachers or pastors. Some folks I know that it, I'm, I have no problem with would say they have no problem with the term women preacher as long as it's not a pastor. That gets into a semantic range that I don't, I don't want to get too semantic about it. But there are those in the convention that seem to be uh, vacillating on that role of women. So that's one of, the, that's one of the conversations. The second category of controversy has been about something that happened in Birmingham, Alabama last summer during the convention where we as a convention affirmed Resolution number nine, you can go read resolution number nine, that had to do with critical race theory and intersectionality 
You can go, re- again, read the language. There are some people concerned that the Southern Baptist Convention is going liberal, and Resolution 9 was a was an example of that, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Plus, Doug and I talked about it on that episode uh, that I mentioned earlier. And then social justice. So there's too much language around social justice and racial reconciliation. So those are the three big categories of controversy. And as we go into the convention, I want to weigh in partly because, uh, listen, I, I know I'm not significant, uh, and I, I'm not going to sway a bunch of people. Like, I don't want to overplay that hand. But I know sort of who listens to my show. And there's a chunk of you that are in church leadership or speak to church leadership, and your churches might be sending messengers. I would want you to talk to your pastors. I know I have some pastors that listen about some of these topics and let your voice be heard on these things because it is important, the, dir- the direction of the Southern Baptist Convention on social justice and on critical race theory, intersectionality, and on the one that matters to me the most here is biblical gender roles. So I'm going to take a break here in a moment. We'll come back and talk about this. There's been a, a group come out called the Conservative Baptist Network, and they are putting together their concerns for the direction of the Southern Baptist Convention. I want to introduce you to their concerns, respond to them in a totally non-strident way. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back. I'm way more surprised than you are that you stuck around. Just kidding. Thank you for being here on His Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9 and on the podcast wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening. Also, I haven't told you in a long time, but every time you share the show on Facebook or Twitter, you can also share it on Instagram, by the way, any of those three times, any of, the, any of those three. When you share it, an angel gets its wings. And so we have a backlog of wingless angels, that's your fault. You caused it because you didn't share the show. Just kidding. And those of you that listen live on the radio, you go, I I can't share it. It's just on the radio. Yeah, well, you can tell somebody. You can be like, hey, here's a guy. And he talks fast and sometimes he's fun. You should listen to the show. Anyway, hey, that's self-promotion. It'd be great if you go listen. You can also support the show if you are so inclined on Anchor, anchor anchor.fm, or find the Anchor app. You can become a supporter of the show, as some of you already are, and I am grateful for those that do support the show financially. All right, here we go. The Southern Baptist Convention meets in June every year. I've been going now for years. It's some of my favorite. Like, it's just a good time. I get to go to Phoenix. That was three years ago, then Dallas, then Birmingham, uh, two out of those three trips, got to go with my big brother, got to go with my dad. I think he was there one one time. It's just it's good. Uh, but it's also a good reminder for me every year that I am fortunate, that I am blessed, not fortunate, I'm blessed, to be a part of this convention that has certainly had its challenges. But every year I do leave that meeting knowing that there is... There is a bunch of faithful people that call themselves Southern Baptists that are really doing the work of the kingdom of God, really doing the work of the church. And so while it's had its challenges, I have a deep abiding recognition of why I'm on this planet. And I get to be on this planet to see the kingdom of God grow. 
And the Southern Baptist Convention is not the obviously not the only method that God is using to see his kingdom grow, but there's a lot of good coming out of it. And I want to see it stay healthy. One By healthy, I mean doctrinally sound and biblically faithful. There have been some concerns popping up around the convention that I want to bring to your attention. I'm going to give you this group this group that's come together here in a moment and their their concerns, but just for my purposes, I, I saw that a part of the lineup it appears at the uh, as part of this event. I'm, I'm about to get into some weeds, but the Southern Baptist Convention technically only meets for two days, but the day before there's a pastors conference, so there's a lot of pastors in town. And so it, it ends up being a four- or five-day event when you include all the pre- and post-stuff that can be going on. And a there's been a person added to the pastor's conference, a, a woman who calls herself a preacher. Of course, I find this problematic. There's been some other musical guests added that come from uh, doctrinal perspectives that are more charismatic or Pentecostal, then Baptist, and these are important distinctions. If distinctions weren't important, most of them would not exist. There are doctrinal distinctions. We, we don't need to cross some of those lines and muddy the waters, and it just seems like there's been some muddying of those waters. That's the kind of stuff that concerns me. There's been some other concerns I want to address. Here we go. There's a guy, it's a pastor, named Brad Jerkovich, and I have so many jokes in my head about his name but I'm not going to make any of them. His name is Brad Jerkovich. He is heading, he's a pastor in Louisiana, and he's going to be heading up something called the Conservative Baptist Network. Now, listen to that name. I hear it and go, oh, they're going to be perfect for me. I am both conservative and Baptist. I'm even conservative to the second power because I'm conservative theologically. I'm also conservative politically. Oh, these folks are going to be great. These are my these are my jam. This is my jam. These are my folks. I, got, I found my home. I'm both conservative and Baptist. Like, and I'm even like proud of it. I love Baptist life and the tradition of Baptist doctrine. Oh, this is going to be awesome. So then I read their uh, their statement they put out. You can find it if you go to conservativebaptistnetwork.com. Conservativebaptistnetwork.com. They are putting out there. Their press release, you can read it in its entirety. I will give you the highlights. Starting from their press release, it says, A significant number of pastors and laymen have formed the Conservative Baptist Network. The network is a product of a grassroots movement of devoted Southern Baptists who have become concerned about the direction and future of the convention. The Southern Baptist Convention, by the way, is... Again, the largest of the convention, largest denomination in the country, about 15 million Southern Baptists, and they're concerned about its future. Paragraph two. A significant number of Southern Baptists are concerned about the apparent emphasis on social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, and the redefining of biblical gender roles. Many fear that these issues have received more attention than evangelism and spiritual renewal, the emphases that helped make Southern Baptist the largest evangelical denomination in the nation. Nation. All right, I want to stop on that paragraph. A couple things. One, evangelism, seeing new people come to faith, repent of their sin and follow after Christ, having that goal plus discipleship, so seeing those that have 
already placed their faith in Christ become more like Christ. Those things, evangelism and discipleship. It's not an either-or when it comes to evangelism and discipleship, or you can do cultural engagement. You can go out and see what's going on in the world around you and try to make the world better. There's not an either-or. It's an and, and they work hand-in-hand. It will be the Christian, it will be the believer that looks at a hurting world where people made in the image of God are being damaged or taken advantage of, and they go, I want to be a part of fixing that. Now, the number one problem in this world for the person who's being taken advantage of is that person needs Jesus. Also, the number one problem for the person taking advantage of them is they need Jesus. And and then if we can get them Jesus, we will certainly change the systems that are causing discrimination and causing... Uh, the, the different types of oppressions in given societies, man, if you can convert a people to Jesus, yes, there will be byproducts of fixing the systems and the structures. Nair, the less. There is also the role that as we do evangelism, we just want to see justice. We want to see the right thing done as well. So you can do both. It's not either or. It does seem like this group, Conservative Baptist Network, is setting it up as an either or. Now, to itemize their issues. Social justice, critical race theory, intersectionality, and redefining of biblical gender roles. I want to take those one by one. I'm taking the last one first. That biblical gender roles thing, this this is starting to make me nervous. It, it, there's another broadcaster I respect a lot who says the, the theology around the role of women in ministry is always the camel under the, the nose of the tent. I don't remember the analogy, but like, it's the first thing. The first thing that happens before a denomination goes off the rails is, well, let's rethink about what we think about women in ministry. I think that particular broadcaster, who I love deeply, uh, he's he's a little bit of a sky is falling guy sometimes, like a little, a little over the line on discern. On, I, I can tell what's happening, a little bit too much, too discerning. But this one is is problematic because I do see it. I see Beth Moore out there. And I see other women who are taking the role of the function of pastor and preacher, and there isn't biblical room for it. To the extent that if that's going to be the position of some people, that there's a place for women to be preaching and pastoring, you need to find a new denomination. Or, you I, can I argue you into actually bring, coming over to what I would consider to be, and I think can be clearly argued, the biblical position? But if you're not going to come there, well, then there's probably a, a Methodist group for you or a Presbyterian group for you, but you don't need to come in and change the clear statements that the Southern Baptists have properly made regarding the role of women in ministry, which is complementarian, that we are we are a group that think men and women are different, and their roles are different, and they're both of equal honor, that just because roles are distinct doesn't mean they're not equally honorable. All right, so biblical gender roles for this group, I go, yeah, I don't like some of the language and things I'm seeing, and so it makes me nervous, and I would love to see some clarifying language about what Southern Baptists believe about biblical gender roles in the church and even at home, too. It's good. All right, then number two, they're concerned about critical race theory and intersectionality. I'm going to put that in one category, critical race theory and intersectionality. Here's the concern. That coming out of academia, the high-end thinkers of the world, there's been this idea of critical race theory and intersectionality. I'm going to sum it up as 
victim status, that you see the world through victimhood, that everything needs to be see through, seen through the prism of who's been victimized by whom, who's had the power in the structures, and how do we make that right even retroactively. I would give you a good example of this is Colin Kaepernick. He's been so, the, the old football player who wasn't good enough to stay in the NFL, the kneeling during the National Anthem guy. Um, as much as I didn't have a problem with him kneeling during the National Anthem, his ideology is still wrong and his ideas are wrong. And there was a, uh, the when, that was it, that's it. When Iran, the thing in Iran happened, uh, Soleimani, when Soleimani was killed, he sent out a tweet, Kaepernick sent out a tweet about how this is just like white people have been violating brown bodies forever. And when, and when you see the entire world through the prism of race, it basically becomes your religion. It is unbiblical. It's wrong to do it that way. But there's this idea of critical race theory and intersectionality. Everything seen through the prism of race and intersectionality would be uh, the more things you are that make you a minority, the more of a victim you are, and therefore the more we should listen to you. And so there was a resolution that, that Doug and I talked about on that episode months ago. Back in, uh, in Re- uh, Birmingham, Alabama last year, you can read the whole thing, I think you should, um, that lays out the idea that critical race theory intersectionality, the actual language is, they are analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. Intersectionality is a study of how different personal characteristics overlap and informs one's experience. It specifically also says in that document that evangelical scholars affirm the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, so saying that we don't need intersectionality in critical race theory, It even says in that document somewhere that critical race theory and intersectionality are not sufficient to diagnose and to address the causes of social ills. This this, uh, resolution that we voted on and passed held up Scripture. Uh, There was even, I remember, a point that said uh, there are people using critical race theory and intersectionality in a ways that result in ideologies and methods that contradict Scripture. And so there was a really well-written, in my opinion, resolution that says, the, the Bible is above all. Everything is subjected to Scripture. But the world, the secular world has come up with a tool to help us interpret the world around us, and we'll use the parts of that tool that can conform itself to Scripture, the parts that can't conform itself to Scripture, we'll throw out, And that makes this conservative group nervous that we would even say intersectionality and understanding critical race theory has any value at all, it seems. And so uh, I am not as nervous. I'm just looking at the world around us. We do have a race problem. We need to understand at least intersectionality, even though it is an unbiblical worldview. And so there's some usefulness to understanding them. And then the other one he said was social justice. They're concerned about social justice. That term is really hard. Because when I think about the biblical social justice, I actually usually think of Amos, the prophet Amos, immediately. Because he was so clear about talking about justice being, well, there are rich people and powerful people who are using their riches and power to stay rich and powerful. They're using unjust scales. They're using their advantage over uh, legal systems and, and court systems and proceedings 
And so there needs to be justice. These people who have power are doing illicit things to keep power. But then you take it into the modern American West, and it starts to mean other stuff. Like some folks start talking about it as affirmative action or reparations. And so that word is hard, social justice. But at the the same time, social justice is a biblical term. It's ours. It belongs to us. The world took it. They messed it up and perverted it, but it is ours, so it would be great to reclaim it. So, uh, and, I, and I'm not discouraged, I'm not nervous about how we've actually used the idea of social justice. I should also mention the part of this that turns me off from these people. They also put in some stuff about there how in, in Dallas in 2018, there was some motions to... Tr- the, there was a Mike Pence was invited to come speak at the convention. He shouldn't have been. It was the wrong decision to have him speak um, because the Southern Baptist Convention isn't American. It is worldwide because it's the church. The church is for all people at all times. It is not uniquely American at all. And these people were very discouraged that there would be people who wouldn't want Mike Pence to come speak from the Trump administration because, of course, Donald Trump is the greatest of us all. And so, none of it doesn't say he's the greatest of us all. I'm just picking up that this conservative Baptist network is also really, really pro-Trump people, and that's part of what's driving them. So we have a minute. I just want you to know, those are the controversies uh, uh, that are uh, leading up to the convention. I will be at the convention in Orlando as a voting messenger in June. And on those topics, intersectionality, critical race theory, social justice, biblical gender roles, I'd even just love to get your thoughts at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. And let's start some discussions where where you think the church is doing well and the church is doing poorly. And just generally, I wanted you to know what was going on as the, the Baptist world starts to have some level of conflict on these things as we lead up to the convention. I would be grateful if you would go share the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you are on social media. Tell someone about it. Support the show at anchor.fm. We'll, we'll do sports when something uh, relevant in the sports world happens. And also, uh, don't forget, you're invited to Beachwood Church Sunday mornings at 1030 in Greenville. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, peace and love.